I will read God's Word from Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, but we will pay considerable attention to verses 10 through 12. Hear now the Word of God. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, to, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I remind you that this is God's holy and inspired word. It contains all that we need for faith and for life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. Let us pray. Oh dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And it truly contains all that we need for faith and for godliness. So teach us. Bless this word upon my mouth. If it's a stretch, far afield, let it be quickly forgotten. But if it is the word of God, make it effectual in my mouth. And bless it, for we ask this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Many don't believe in a place called hell. These people, by and large, don't complain about a place called heaven, but they do complain about the belief in the existence of hell. However, in this passage, Jesus says something that utterly contradicts these people and makes sure that we believe in hell and hell truly exists. And if Jesus says it, we have an obligation to believe it. A few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus, in a consistent way with his humanity, marvels at this faith of the centurion. This faith was at one time portrayed a a solemn conviction that Jesus was divine, that he was omnipotent, 
that his power and authority extended to all people in all places and all time, and that this same all-powerful Jesus was also merciful. And so the centurion came and, and pled like a humble servant, a humble beggar before the majestic Lord Jesus Christ. And what he sought, Jesus granted to him correspondingly to the faith, his faith. But Jesus did more than just grant his request. There was a more blessedness to be obtained by his faith than simply the healing of his servant. This faith likewise acquired for the centurion citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. It is this which we are going to look at this morning. Yet we also must note that not only will we see what this faith includes for the people of God, we will all see what the absence of this faith will exclude people from the kingdom of heaven and include them in in an excruciatingly horrendous other kingdom. So, with that, let us uh, provide the theme of the text, the doctrine of the text. Jesus includes and excludes people from the heavenly kingdom. This is said quite simply. Jesus includes and excludes people from the heavenly kingdom. In the exposition, we will look at this passage under two headings. One, the inclusion of the kingdom of heaven. And secondly, exclusion from the kingdom of heaven. We will take each one in turn. Inclusion in the kingdom of heaven. As we begin, we must ask the question, who is included? The answer is quite simple. Those who have the faith that resembles the centurion. Jesus began with amazement toward this man and his faith. And he says, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It seems quite apparent, doesn't it? That Jesus is saying that those with the faith like the centurion are those who will obtain the kingdom of heaven. Citizen, citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, as becomes abundantly clear, doesn't rely upon ethnicity or nationality or natural generation. It depends solely on faith. Those who trust in the very same way that the centurion does here, the conviction that, that Jesus is divine, able, all-powerful, and merciful, merciful, a faith that unreservedly trusts in Christ alone as the only hope of admittance into the kingdom of heaven. It is the one who trusts who obtains. Next, we ask for a description of this kingdom, a description. The passage gives us, us at least six descriptions of this kingdom. 
The first one is this is an eternal kingdom. An eternal kingdom. Jesus said, many will come and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, you know, by the time of the New Testament, these had been dead for well over 1,800 years. In the present, they have been dead for over 3,800 years. How is it that anyone can have fellowship with people who are already deceased? We know the answer to this. Those who have left this earth in death continue to live into eternity. There is life beyond the grave. And as we shall see, life in either heaven or hell. Those who appeared to be dead are not actually dead at all. By faith, presently they are no longer here in the body, but they are, as Paul says elsewhere, absent from the body yet present with the Lord. It is a kingdom where death has no reign. This is an eternal kingdom. Secondly, it is a continuing kingdom. Continuing kingdom. It is quite clear here, isn't it, that evidently Jesus is not promising anything new. Instead, he is promising something that he had promised to the covenant people before. I will let Calvin explain it here. Hence, we draw the certain conclusion that the same promise which which has been held out to us in Christ, was formerly given to the fathers. For we would, have, for we would not have had an, inter- an inheritance in common with them if the faith by which it is obtained had not been the same. In other words, Jesus is promising the centurion That due to his faith, he will obtain a place with the patriarchs. To put it another way, the patriarchs receive this heavenly inheritance by faith in Jesus, who was to come. Just like the centurion has promised. Throughout the Bible, men and women have always been saved by faith. They have always obtained the same promises and eternal inheritance by the same calls, faith in the Christ to come or faith in Christ that has come. I must tell you this because people so often misunderstand the Old Testament. I had a conversation with someone just a few weeks ago who said what so many people say all the time. People in the Old Testament were saved by works. But that is not true. What Paul said in Galatians 2 was true, was as true in the Old Testament as is true in the New Testament. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Not now, not ever. Abraham, like us, was saved by faith in the Messiah to come. 
So Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham was declared righteous by faith. He was deemed righteousness. Excuse me. He was being deemed righteous, not by a righteousness of his own, but a righteousness which came to him by faith. We must understand this if we are to understand the whole of Scripture. Third, we must understand that this is a consummate kingdom. A consummate kingdom. To mark the end of the War of 1812, the English and the, uh, and the French signed the Treaty of Ghent, officially ending this war. Yet the Battle of New Orleans continued to rage for 15 days after its signing because news of the agreement had not reached New Orleans that quickly. So it is with the kingdom of God. When Jesus came in the flesh and was crucified and had had risen from the dead, these things marked the sure victory over sin and Satan. And this is the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven. Yet the battle still rages between Christ and Satan. Yet the battle has already been been given. The battle has already been, been decisively won by Christ. And that will be declared at the end of human history. The situation which Jesus is describing here is a, foretell, is a foretelling of the consummation. The final state of human history. He is not speaking of what we might call the inauguration of the kingdom or the intermediate state, but he speaks of the consummative state. It is clear that Jesus is speaking about this, for he describes the people of faith as reclining at table with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. Now, why would people be said to sit at a table? To eat. And you don't eat if you don't have a body. So what Jesus is describing here is membership in the eternal kingdom of glory. When all things have been made right, when the earth has been restored to what it was made to be, and now to an infinitively greater degree, we will have glorified bodies. Not hampered by sin, nor by decay, nor death. We will be living souls with glorious bodies after that day. We will sit at the table and enjoy rich fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is a beautiful fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 25. I quote, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, or rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. 
the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This day when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom on earth will be a day of feasting, of eating of all things, and all things which come to their conclusion. It will be what we all desire. It will be our happily ever after. His kingdom will be a consummative kingdom. We learn that this king will also be an encompassing kingdom. Jesus says here, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, etc. Many will come, not all, but many will come and they will come from all over. The statement from east to west is what we call a merism. It is to say two different extremes in order to conclude the whole. It is to say that they will come from everywhere. Now this would have been quite shocking for the Jews in in his midst. They viewed themselves as a privileged people. But the clear testimony of Scripture shows that the kingdom was always intended to include all people. Yet the Israelites failed to understand this. Yet Jesus is making clear the heavenly kingdom will include peoples from everywhere and from all types of people, even as this Roman centurion. This would have strongly chided the Jews while at the same time greatly encouraged the disciples or the Gentiles present. Think of the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus and said, Oh, if I could just have a crumb from the table of the Jews. Jesus here says, I'll do you one better. On the last day, you will eat a feast with my covenant people. You will dine with the likes of Abraham, with the likes of Isaac, and with the likes of Jacob. What an, extraordinary, what an extraordinary message to the outcast of society. Like lepers, as we saw in the, the beginning of the chapter, Gentiles likewise were outcasts in society. They were regarded as unclean. So the centurion told Jesus that he was not worthy for him to enter his house. Partly because according to Jewish custom, it would not have, he would have been contaminated by it. Yet Jesus says, no longer, no longer any ethnic barriers shall separate the people of faith from the kingdom of God. Fifth, this kingdom would be a feastal or joyful kingdom. We are told that believers will recline at table with the covenant people of God. 
Jesus is telling us that on that day, when all things are completed, members of this kingdom, this kingdom of heaven, will come to enjoy a heavenly banquet, a joyful and glorious celebration. It is an occasion of joy and celebratory fasting or celebratory feasting. Remember again the prophecy of Isaiah. It will be a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a, a, rich and f- a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Have you ever been invited to a meal or even a great banquet and yet there was not enough food? Jesus went to a wedding where the wine ran out, and it was apparently a source of great embarrassment to the hosts. Yet Jesus, in a way that anticipates the new heavens and the new earth, filled the purifying jars with the best wine available to humankind. There will be no shortage of supplies in God's kingdom. And it will, be, it, it will not be a time of embarrassment for the king of glory. When Jesus' disciples, excuse me, when John's disciples came to Jesus, they asked him why Jesus' disciples did not fast. And he said, because I am with them. There will be plenty of time for fasting when I am gone, but as for now, I, the bridegroom, am here. Let us celebrate and dine together. Imagine what it will be like when we are in His presence. There will be no end to His bounty. The mountains will flow with the most glorious wine and milk and honey. It will be a joyous celebration. And as we celebrate, as Isaiah 25 and Revelation 22 say, He will wipe away every tear from our eye. There will be no more tears. There will be far too much joy for that. In continuity with this, this kingdom, lastly, will be a communal kingdom. This will be a kingdom of fellowship, of relationships, of our union. First of all, with God's covenant people. The covenant people of God will dwell together. Jesus said, we will dwell with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We will recognize them. And we will know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've been asked many times, will we know each other in the, in the kingdom of heaven? Or will I see my departed family members, uh, husband and wife, etc.? I think this passage provides great encouragement that the answer is yes. If we will know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, members of the covenant people, why would we not also recognize the other members? I want to be careful not to say too much here. But I think that we are on safe ground to derive this implication. 
More importantly, I think this implies what is confirmed more clearly elsewhere that we will enjoy fellowship with God himself. As as wonderful as it will be to be reunited with our loved ones, it will be infinitely greater to enjoy the presence of our covenant Lord and to commune with him. John 17.3 says, And this is eternal life, that we know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. We begin this now. And we commune with him by the word and, and his spirit through faith. But when the kingdom is consummated, we will no longer need to walk by faith. But we will only walk by sight and dwell with him in his presence. Revelation 22, 3 through 5 say, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We will see God and the Lamb and fellowship with Him and be illuminated now and forever. Jesus reveals to us today the kingdom is glorious. Yet there is also an antithesis to this. There are those who are excluded from the kingdom of God. And we must now briefly consider this. Robert Murray McShane once said this, and I'm paraphrasing at this point. You must dangle the rubies before God to get them to come. But never be afraid about preaching hell if the text warrants it. We have just held out the rubies, but we have to preach hell if we are going to be faithful to the preaching of the gospel. We have to preach the exclusion from the kingdom of heaven. Like the former, we must ask, who is excluded? The answer is simple. Those who do not have faith like the centurion. Those who reject faith in Jesus. Jesus says in the most shocking of phrases that this could include the sons of the kingdom. That is, those who were external members of the church, of the visible church. Those who had been surrounded by things of God. Those who were physical descendants of Abraham. Those who enjoyed the external privileges and yet denied faith in Jesus. The point is clear. There is one thing needed. Faith in Christ. As the hymn writer says, faith is the victory. But the averse is true. The absence of faith is defeat. And the, description, uh, the descriptions of this kingdom is awful. 
If you have a heart beating in your chest, you wouldn't wish this upon anyone, even your worst enemies. The description. Jesus describes the destination of the faithless in the grimmest way of ways in verse 12. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It has four characteristics that uh, we will briefly recount. First, it is a place of darkness. Whereas the consummated heaven is a place of light brought on by God, this place, hell, is void of God's covenantal presence and only remains utterly dark. It is utterly absent of any and all light. There are few things more terrifying in this life than absolute darkness. What a gruesome fate to experience the pain of penetrating darkness that is tangible and never-ending. Second, this kingdom will be a place of separation. The heavenly kingdom is a place of reunion. Hell is a place of utter separation. Without light, no one else can can be seen. And it is one of the utter, excuse me, it is one of the utter estrangements from loved ones in the faith. In Luke 16, Lazarus tells the rich man that between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. It is a place of severance and separation. Thirdly, it is a place of agony. A place of agony. Jesus says that it will be a place of weeping. This weeping will express the sorrow that will constantly surround those who live there. Whereas the people of God will experience great joy at the banquet of the Lord, those who reject Christ will know only sorrow without any hope of change. Surely in such a state, There will be repentance, right? So often people are moved at this point. Is it fair that this state of torture will last forever? Will not people, uh, will not people moved by this sorrow to repent in this place of torture? And and shouldn't the merciful God be merciful to them? Yet we are given one last image of this place. And it is decidedly clear that there is no repentance here, but rage. Fourth, this is a place of rage. Jesus says there will be gnashing of teeth in this place. This is an image of uncontrollable anger and rage. Even in death and even in judgment, They will continue to spite God. 
even when fully aware of the awful reality of God, they will refuse to bow to Him and acknowledge Him. They will not plead for mercy. Those who didn't plead for mercy in life will continue to, re- re- will continue to refuse mercy and death. And they will gnash their teeth at the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And their eternity eternity will be marked by rage. John Patton told a story of his encounter with a raging atheist while he he was ministering in Scotland. On his deathbed, Patton went to him and tried to persuade him to repent. Instead, the man angrily cried out, Curse you, Patton! I cursed God and life. I will curse Him at death. That is the spirit of the inhabitants of this kingdom. It is a kingdom of uncontrollable anger and rage. What an awful place this is. What an awful kingdom. Hell will be and a terrible fate will this be. May none of us experience such an awful, horrific place. Instead, may we cling to God's grace in Christ by faith and put our trust only in Him. May we recognize that in ourselves there is only darkness, separation, anger, and rage. And may we plead for Christ's mercy now and be spared from the wrath to come. As we close, consider that this is a tale of two kingdoms. One kingdom is glorious, and the other is absolutely horrendous. And because of our sins, we are all destined to hell, except someone save us from this gruesome fate. Yet there, yet there is a person who has made clear to us that he is the only way to the heavenly city. That those who come to him in faith, trusting in him and believing that he is able to do all that he says, he will take us there. This person is none other than Jesus. Have you ever seen a child that got Have you ever seen a child that lost? uh, Have you ever seen a child lost in the mall or or in Walmart? It is a heartbreaking sight. They are very distressed because the child has lost their mother. And the terrifying reality of life without her has struck them with great fear. Then a friend comes along. Someone whom the child knows and trusts that he knows the parent. And the friend says, come with me, Susie. I will take you to your mother. I know where she is and I will take you to her. Suddenly the tears tears cease and a smile casts upon her face. Why? Why? Because Susie trusts this friend. She knows him. 
And she, she believes that he will do all of what he has promised. This is your condition and this is my condition. We are lost. We are estranged from the Father by our nature. And we are utterly helpless to find our way to Him. The prospect of life without Him is horrendous and grim. But then Jesus, Jesus comes along and says, I know your Father and I will take you to Him. Do you trust me? Do you trust Him? If you do, you will not be disappointed. You can trust Him because He bore the curse of God in your place. He bore the curse of death on the cross. He bore hell in your place. He bore the darkness for you. He bore separation from God for you. He bore the agony and the the rage for you in your place so that you would never have to bear hell. That is why we come to the Lord's Supper. In taking the Supper, you express your faith in Christ because His body was broken for you and His blood was spilt for you. And He says, do this in remembrance of Me. Let us pray and ask the Lord to enable Him Enable us to remember Him. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we ask that You help us remember Christ who has given us access to the Kingdom of Heaven. As we have seen, it is an eternal, continuing, consummate, encompassing, joyful, and communal kingdom. And it is the only, it is only granted to, to us by faith in Christ. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And by faith in Christ, we acknowledge that Jesus is the only way to the Father. May we pray fervently for our friends and family members that have rejected the faith in the one true Savior. And the place of wrath is only reserved for them at this point. But may we fervently pray for them that they would come to faith and therefore be included in this marvelous kingdom of heaven. Furthermore, we come to this table of the Lord's Supper and ask that You would bless it and make this supper effectual to our spiritual bodies and spiritual faith. We ask all these things for the sake of Christ. Amen.